No, I'm not actually. In when I'm in social situations, I don't really say much. <laughs> like, believe it or not, um, I can be quite, uh, quite. timid. <laughs> yeah, and so, so, so when I go to like country houses and stuff, which is my ting, um, I kind of like to to take it all in and embrace it. And whereas my mum likes to ask lots of questions, rightfully so. Everybody's different. Um, but um, she, she's standing there talking to the guides forever, and I'm just like, oh, I'm done with this room. Next, next room. <laughs> like, and then she's just like, Can you stop walking off for me, please? Anyone would think you're embarrassed to be around me. I was like, I'm not, <laughs> like, at all. My attention span is just shorter than yours. I need more. I this need is it. new stimulation. This is it. So um, blame, blame the media. Yeah, well, we watch three second clips on bloody YouTube and stuff, and we're like, yeah. No, boring. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with This Story Starts in the Victorian Era. My favourite. I know, I was thinking of you from the get-go. Thank you. On April 27th, 1865, Archibald Leach was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Ah, Glasgow. Two for two. It was an interesting time to be born there, when he was born there, because at the time of his birth, Glasgow was in the middle of a major population boom. Mm-hmm. It had overtaken Edinburgh in 1821 as the largest city in Scotland, a title it holds to this day, and would go on to become one of the first cities in Europe to reach a million citizens. Interesting. It, once it started to grow, boom, did it mm. grow. They do mention that quite a lot still when you're in, in Glasgow. They're mm. like, we get called the second city, but we're bigger, so, so f- move over. Yeah, yeah. Screw you, Edinburgh. Yeah. This was because Glasgow had taken to industrialisation in a massive way and was now the hub for shipbuilding in the UK. Yeah. Naturally, all the supporting industries making the fixtures and fittings for the ships and all the merchants supplying the raw materials needed premises as close to the docks as possible meaning that there was an almost constant need for lots of factories, warehouses and admin offices to be built to keep up with the demand. And this is the story of those office blocks. Exciting. It's so fun. Like, there's still loads of them around the Clyde, Mm. like now. Um, Half of them are derelict, but um, they're still there. Yeah, like, well, we could redevelop it, but what what are we going to put in there in its place? Hmm. Maybe housing? No, oh, don't be stupid. <laughs> there's, there's so many people on the housing list, it would solve many issues. All of this work naturally brought in workers from all over the country and beyond. These people worked long hours for little pay, and as the city filled up with industrial buildings, they were forced to live in ever more cramped slum-like districts, such as the Goebbels, or the Gorbels. The Gorbels, I know it well. Okay. Yep. yep. Which was less than half a mile square in size, but at its peak in the 1930s, housed over 30,000 people. Oh, it's insane. You can look back at some of these photos of the slums in the Gorbals, and it is crazy. One of the little people, one of the tiny babies who was born in the 1930s in Gorbals, was Ian Brady, who would go on to find some level of fame in a double act with Myra Hindley as the Moors murderers. I didn't realise he was Glaswegian. He was Glaswegian and he was born in the Gorbals. No way. Yeah. There are I other people that. who came from the Gorbals who had a much more, you know, sort of positive effect on history. Mm. With terrible pay and housing, the people in slums such as the Gorbals needed some form of distraction. Something they could do in their limited spare time that would provide a reason to carry on for another working week. And they turned to religion. Mm-hmm. Okay. No. Religion is not going to cut it. They turned to football. Okay, right. I was going to say, right, okay, fine. It was a bit late for for all of that in, in 1860. No, the, religion, it, it still played a big part, especially mm. in the football. But no, football was what they needed to, to get them to go from Saturday to Saturday. And again, young Archibald Leach had been born at a very fortuitous time because in 1867, when he was only two years old, a group of strapping young men met in a house just a mile to the west of the Gorbals. The I've got to stop calling it the Gerbils. 
You can call it whatever you like. I've been doing a little bit of World War Two research and it's stuck in my head. Um, oh shit, I didn't even realise the connection then. <laughs> so in a house just a mile west of the Gorbal slums to form the very first Scottish amateur football team, Queen's Park. Yeah, Queen's Park Rangers, is no, that right? No, Queen's Park. No. okay. Uh, the club had amateur status, meaning that no players actually received a wage for playing for Queen's Park. Though obviously over time this became less tenable, and they finally decided to begin actually paying their players in 2019. What? And they were in the Scottish League that entire time. So there was a club in the Scottish Leagues for over 140 years that did not pay their players. And 2019? Players, yep, that's when they finally became a professional club. That's mental, isn't it? I mean, I know where it is. I, I don't know why I said Queen's Park Rangers, because I actually used to live in Queen's Park, so I should know this. Um, uh, they they played at Hamden. Yep, yep. I know exactly where that is. Yep. yep. I sort of take that there. Oh. <laughs> Queen's Park were followed by a raft of other clubs, including Kilmarnock FC in 1869, Stranraer FC in 1870, and Dumbarton FC, Callender, and Rangers in 1872. Okay. Renton, 3rd Lanark, Arthley, Greenock, Morton, Hamilton, Hearts, Beath, Hibernian, Falkirk, Partick Thistle, St Mirren, Abercorn, Clyde, Edrionians, Alloa Athletic, Arbroath, Royal Albert, and Eyre were also founded in the 1870s. Uh, though sadly, Dagshead FC which has a great name, missed out on this list as no one is quite sure when they first formed as a team because they were oh. quite shy in announcing that. Couldn't they just make it up? Well, the the best guess anyone has is the early 1880s. Okay. But none of these teams really mattered to young Archibald Leach as Rangers FC had come along when he was just seven years old. And from that point, he didn't have eyes for anyone else. And imagine that in today's sort of situation that you support a club that you're technically older than. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose you wouldn't get that now. And local football, I guess, a local team springs up, or if a new town's built, then maybe. Yeah, maybe MK Dons, you know. Yeah. Those kinds of things, but it's it just doesn't feel right that you know the the football club that you support has less history than you do. <laughs> yeah. Rangers yeah, itself, they spent a few years moving around until they settled into the Clydesdale Cricket Ground in 1876, which had an impressive capacity. Of 7,000. Mm. Mm, look at that. You're, you're raking in the money when you've got 7,000 bums on seats. What year is this? Uh, that was 1876 that they moved into the Clydesdale Cricket Ground. 7,000 people for an, an amateur game? Well, this Not was much. before um, the Scottish League was formed, so these would all have been uh, essentially friendly matches. Yeah, like uh, local teams. Yeah, just playing each other, organising mm. it themselves and sort of, uh, posting flyers to say the game was going to be going on. Yeah. A decade later, though, 21-year-old Archibald Leach would surely have been excited when his beloved club announced that they were going to move to a purpose-built football stadium called Ibrox, which would add just over double the capacity of the cricket ground. So we're going up to nearly 15,000 seats. Mm, that's pretty good. Walking into the original Ibrox for the first time on August 20th, 1887, must have been a magical moment for Archie. While watching his club develop and grow, he'd also been busy with his education, eventually qualifying as an industrial and mechanical engineer. He's been busy. Yeah. And he was probably impressed not only by the atmosphere, but also by the design and scale of the stands themselves. Mm. This was a bold piece of, you know, art, architecture, melded together to make this wonderful, almost holy place for him. Yeah. I like the old stadiums. Mm. Unfortunately, though... The match itself was not quite as awe-inspiring, with Rangers losing their first game in their new home 8-1 to Preston North End. Oh, no. That's not what you want on your first game, is it? I mean, I, I imagine as well, just to make it, you know, just to really twist the knife that they scored first. <sighs> and like, oh, here we go. We're going to beat Preston. We're going to beat the Invincibles. We're going to beat go, one lads. of the best professional teams in England. Archibald found work uh, shortly after designing factories both in Glasgow and as far afield as Sri Lanka. Oh, right. Naturally, that one was a tea factory. Yeah. Because, you know, what else are we going to build in Sri Lanka? Only things that benefit the English. And what benefits Mm. the English more than tea? Nothing. Thank you. But his passion was clearly for football. You know, he built these things. He, He didn't feel good about building them. It was just a pay packet. 
He daydreamed through his twenties about combining his work and his hobby in some way, but he couldn't see a way of doing it. He he wanted to be involved in the football scene, but he's like, well, I'm a factory designer. What can I offer mm. to football? I'm not particularly athletic. I, and I wish this was the story of the first mascot, but it's not. <laughs> what is? Do they have a mascot? I don't. I don't know that Rangers have a mascot. I don't. Mm. I don't actually know that many Scottish teams have mascots. I, th- I do, think it's more. Do of English teams? Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Like as in like dressed up as, as in like dressed bunnies up, yeah. and stuff. Oh God, yes, yes. Uh, Barnsley I always thought have that was a like tyke dog. I always thought that was like an American football thing, mm. or they basketball, well. whatever it was. American football do it, yeah. And yeah. I think basketball, well, baseball do. I don't know if basketball do, but yeah, there's a lot of English clubs who have uh, mascots who'll come round. Mm, there you go. I'm learning lots. When we went to Morecambe, we found out it was a giant Mazuma Mobile mascot. <laughs> Do they still exist? What, Mazuma Mobile? Well, Mizuma they own the stadium, so nothing else. They own Morecambe Stadium. I might have said this before, and I don't know if it's you that I was saying it to, but like, I quite like some of like the football strips and stuff. I think they're quite cool, but I just hate that the branding is just... Like, the team logo, like, the crest is, like, tiny... And then you've got, like, phones for you, like, bloody plastered everywhere. It's just like, I don't... Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want phones for you plastered on me. I want my team. Well, you can get... Um, I, you can buy replica kits for a lot of them that have no sponsorship on it. Mm, so you can do that. That's what I would be having. Mm. Good. You keep it pure mm, for that team yeah. that you don't support. I shall. Good. As he became known for his good quality designs, he was invited to join both the Institution of Engineers and Shipbuilders in Scotland and the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, which naturally led to an invitation to join the Freemasons, which Archibald did in the mid-1890s, when he was just turning 30 years old. He's done a lot, hasn't he, considering... He, he's progressed well, mm. yes. into He's matured into a 30-year-old quite, yeah. quite nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's making good money albeit doing things that, you know, is just functional for him. It's like, this is the way I make my money. Spending it on going to follow rangers around the country and going to all the games. Now, it may have been that his design skills were considered to be just that good, or it could have been his constant conversations about his beloved rangers to the other Masons. The first formal Scottish league, by the way, had been formed in 1890, when, in the very first season, it was co-won by rangers and Dumbarton. Ah. which meant that there were regular games to attend and talk about because league structure means, you know, weekly games. Yeah. I say co-won because Rangers and Dumbarton finished on the same amount of points and they decided okay. to have a playoff to see who would, you know, like a winner-takes-all game. Yeah. Which they drew 2-2. Uh, and they didn't feel like doing a replay, so they just went, do you know what, we're co-winners. Do not do, like, penalties and stuff? No, penalties hadn't been developed by this point. Uh, okay. The penalty didn't exist. So Penalties are. Um, I mean, I don't really watch football, but obviously, if there's a big like England game on or something, then I will. And they're um, they're very tense, aren't they? Mm. Even I got tense. Yeah, it's it's the way it's set up. It, mm. it, you can't be neutral during a penalty shootout. Your brain will, even if it is a neutral game, your brain will go, "I want that team to win." Yeah. And then suddenly you start to get invested very quickly in a penalty shootout. Mm, yeah. But penalties hadn't been decided. And uh, okay. it is the only time that the Scottish League has been co-won. And it there will be the only time, I should imagine. Yeah, because they'll go into penalties. Well, no, they go into um, goal difference and then they go into head-to-heads. And then they go into, they've got so many different parameters. I think eventually they take it down to stuff like who had the most corners. Over the These course players of the season. must be absolutely knackered by the end of it. By the end of the season? Well, yeah. I imagine during the first professional season, it was like nothing they'd ever experienced before. Mm. You know, it's like, we have to play every weekend for 20 weeks. Are you mad, sir? <laughs> I've got a job to go to. Yeah. The human body isn't built to take this kind of punishment. I will play once a month. <laughs> if that. Yes. God damn you. Mm. Next you'll be talking about midweek games and playing teams from other parts of Europe. This is ridiculous. How dare you even allude to the idea. But whatever the reason, when Rangers decided after winning the league again in 1899, which was the first of four in a row that they won, they decided the stadium was no longer fit for purpose. 
And the contract for designing the new Western Terrace was given to 34-year-old Rangers superfan and newly established consulting engineer Archibald Leach. Yes, he'd made it. He he finally was going to get to do something at Rangers that he could point to and go, I did that. So is this still in the same spot as like the old stadium? Yes, this is still the original Ibrox location. Okay. They did add Rangers that they couldn't actually pay him for the work above the cost of the parts and the actual, you know, construction. So he wasn't going to be getting a fee. But Archie, he didn't care. He was happy to waive the fee. He, was, he wasn't going to sully what was such a glorious moment for him by asking oh. for money. And that's going to look good on his CV as well. Yeah, well, it's going to look good on his CV. And for the rest of his life, when he's going to watch Rangers play, he'll be able to point to an entire stand and go, I did that, you know. Oh, God, do you know what? My dad used to do that when he, when he came out of the Paris and he, was, he became a roofer. Um, oh, every time we went into London or, or anywhere, really, I did that roof. I did that. That's, that's my work, that is. And then he'd like, look at other people's roofs and be like, oh, nah, shoddy work, that, shoddy work. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Oh, you've got to take pride in, in what you do. And, and Leach was going to take pride in this. This was going to be the crowning glory of his 34 years. Mm. Yeah, too right. If he had been paid for the work, it would probably have been quite a large sum, as although they had expanded the ground gradually from 15,000 to nearly 40,000 capacity over the years, they wanted Archibald to create a monster of a stand that would hold 36,000 spectators all on its own, taking the total capacity to 75,000 and making Ibrox the largest stadium in Scotland and in the UK at the turn of the century. Ah, yes, dream big. This would not only give them bragging rights over their main rival Celtic, but it was also hoped that it would convince the Scottish FA to use Ibrox as the venue for hosting Scottish international matches. Ah, so it became the home stadium. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, it was lucrative because these international games could bring in extra revenue at upwards of £1,000 per game, yeah. or approximately twenty grand today. <laughs> so above and beyond what you're normally making in a season from you know spectators and all the things... Yeah. Add a couple of international games and you're making an extra quarter of a million. Jesus. It's not bad, is it? Not bad at all. With practically no large-scale stands in existence to study, Archibald settled on what was essentially a larger version of the traditional wooden terraces that had been used up to that point. The design called for an iron frame to be built, which would then have lengths of timber boarding laid down across the gaps, like American-style bleachers, if you can imagine. Yeah. The stand rose to a maximum height of nearly 60 foot, or 18 metres, and was declared complete in March 1902, when the Govan Burr surveyor had a look, kicked some of the iron frames and said, it's probably safe enough. (laughs) It was given the name West Tribune Stand. However, shortly after it had been finished, there were reports in the newspapers that people had seen the structure swaying in the winds, Uh, which was a little bit worrying. Yeah. Even Archie himself was not convinced. Although theoretically the 96-step terrace could accommodate close to the 36,000 spectators that had been requested by Rangers, he worked out that this would give each person only a 35cm by 40cm space to stand in. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm broader than that. It was was so tiny. (laughs) He suggested that the amount of spectators allowed to use the new sand be capped at a lower amount. It would also probably be good, he suggested... To test the structure's integrity with a few lower-key events where less fans might be likely to attend. Just to be safe, just to, you know, test the theory. Mm. The Rangers board heard the concerns of the press, and those of the engineer who had built the thing. And then they submitted a bid to host the final of the British Home Championship, which would be a winner-take-all game against the old enemy England. So, if you're looking at things that are going to attract a small you know, low-key crowd. I was going to say, that's that's going to be a huge crowd. It's, go- it's going to be a massive crowd, yes. Mm. The new and improved Ibrox won the right to host the match by a single vote, with the date set for April 5th, 1902. And on April 5th, 1902, Archibald Leach was in attendance alongside a crowd of around 70,000 other supporters to watch Scotland versus England. And even though this is only 19, uh, 1902, even though this is only 1902, this was the 31st time this international had been played. It's the oldest international football match in the world. It's um, impressive. Yeah, 
within about 30 years of you know football being a thing we've played it 31 times <laughs> we will do this forever mm. old oh. rivalries die hard eh well i mean look at the um the world cup this time around there's a very good chance we'll have either wales or scotland in our group because uh, they don't normally qualify do they uh, they didn't qualify for a long time. They qualified for France ninety no France. They the last they qualified for France ninety eight. Scotland didn't um, Scotland win the World Cup like after nineteen sixty six. No, like Scotland no. had never won the World Cup. Oh, they not? No. Wow. If it was held earlier, if they'd have been holding it in like the 1900s, the 1910s, Scotland undoubtedly would have won multiple World Cups. Yeah. Because they they were just so far ahead of the rest of the world Mm. in terms of, you know, they they invented passing. Yeah. Which is quite big in football, I've heard. Um, (laughs) It just came too late for them. And although they produce amazing players, they've just never had that generation where they've produced enough at one time. Yeah. Yeah, it's staggered. Yeah. And I, I imagine there will be a time when they'll do, you know, like a, a Belgium, where they'll just produce this golden generation, or Wales did um, mm. a couple of years ago. Where, do you reckon when they get independence and they can, like, push all their resources into... What, just into the football? Just into the football, just to make a point. Yeah, that's Nicola Sturgeon's plan. She's like, first of all, <laughs> we get independence, then we spank their asses at she football. She hates football. She, yeah, mm. she's not a fan. Well, the 70,000 true Scots who were in attendance to watch football, uh, around half of those were in the West Tribune stand. The match started well for Scotland, and in the 25th minute, debutant forward Alexander Brown scored, sending the Scottish fans into raptures, jumping up and down in the West Tribune stand with gay abandon. Oh, no, don't tell me that that's going to happen, what I think is going to happen. Five minutes later, another promising young Scottish talent called Bobby Templeton flew forwards down the left wing, causing a surge in the crowd as everyone strained to get a better view. And whereas in most of the other um, stands, people sort of moved forwards, a lot of people in the west stand had stepped forward off the um, actual stand itself up to the Mm. railings, which meant that people had to move backwards to get a view over their heads. Okay. So they weirdly surged backwards. So all the weight was pushing back. Back towards the top of the stand, yeah. I, you can't see me then, but I did a backwards movement. So you, you were part of the crowd. You went, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, so that happened. It was at this point that a large cracking sound was heard. A section of the wooden terrace right at the back of the stand suddenly collapsed as 17 joints simultaneously failed, creating a 20-foot-wide hole like a trapdoor. Hundreds of spectators fell nearly 50 feet to the ground. The first 26 to hit the floor were mostly instantly killed. However, their deaths were not in vain, as the other spectators who began falling on top of them were able to make use of their corpses as a makeshift cushion, allowing them to survive, albeit with over 150 others sustaining serious injuries. Someone's in trouble. Not immediately, though because this was before the invention of the tannoy system, and it took a while for the rest of the stadium to become aware that the disaster had taken place. Mm. In fact, the game continued long enough for England to score an equaliser via Everton legend Jimmy Settle in the 43rd minute. I thought you were going to say Jimmy Savile then. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, he was that old. Mm. He's a vile creature. I watched a documentary about him the other day, and he makes my skin cruel. Mm. Yes, well, Jimmy Settle was a fine, upstanding Christian man who had 2.4 children, exactly, Mm. and always ate his vegetables and scored in the 43rd minute. The players were eventually ordered from the pitch, only to find that their changing rooms had been transformed into a makeshift morgue slash hospital. However, the Scottish Football Association were concerned that if the match was called off altogether, the spectators would start leaving the ground en masse, and that would hinder the ability for the injured to be transported to hospital. So, after a 20-minute delay, they ordered that the game should continue. <laughs> what? Yep. Uh, it's all right. There's people dead. It's fine. Just keep going. No, keep but going. It has to continue for the safety of the survivors, okay? We can't... I bet there was probably some massive bets on it. That's probably why. <laughs> well, with no one trusting the West Tribune stand anymore, 
Uh, spectators were pressed up to the edge of the pitch, and at one point, police on horseback had to be asked politely to move in order that a free kick could be taken. <laughs> oh, this is not going well, is it? It is reported that the Scottish goalkeeper, Ned Doig, was openly weeping throughout the entire second half. Oh. And amazingly, there wasn't the same intensity and there were no more goals scored. No, well, it's something really traumatic has just happened. Mm. And I know this is very minimal, considering the disaster that's just occurred and the 26 lives lost, but you've got to spare a little bit of sympathy for Alexander Brown, the Scottish goalscorer. Because after the game, it was decided by both FAs that the result will be um, deemed invalid okay. and will be stricken from the record books. So officially, the game never occurred. Oh, no. It was Alexander Brown's only appearance for Scotland and his Ever. only goal for Scotland in his life. And it's been taken away. Yeah, technically, that moment where you know, the better part of 70,000 people were cheering his name never happened in the history books. It's, it's a little thing considering what had happened, but I think it's important to just. I think everybody's concerns and 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 um, challenges are um, valid. Okay. So it's val- it's valid for him to feel like that. Mm. Well, I don't know. I'm just assuming that he did feel a bit. Mm. I, I know people died, but that was that was my only Scotland goal, and now you're saying it's not a Scotland goal, and. I just oh. want to go home. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to play anymore. I mean, I don't know if he stopped playing football because of the trauma that he experienced. I mean, yeah, it probably would do that to somebody. When you walk in, you know, you've been ordered from the pitch, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. Then you walk in, and you're confronted by 20 dead bodies where you were getting changed half an hour ago. Yeah. Yeah. There was an inquest, uh, and the inquest suggested that it was a lumber merchant called Alexander McDougall who was in the wrong, having supplied the wrong kind of wood. Okay, but surely people should have been checking up on that. Well, yes. I mean, what they said was he was supposed to be providing a certain type of pine and he was providing a sub-quality pine and pocketing the difference. Ah. But yes, first of all, you should be checking the quality of the materials that you're getting. Mm. You know, that's kind of on you. Uh, And also there was some damning testimony from other engineers who suggested that Archibald had based his designs on out-of-date textbooks and that his construction would only have been able to manage stresses a third of that that was placed on it during the match. So they claim that, you know, you can blame the wood, you can blame everything else you want, but the design itself was intrinsically flawed and could never have done what, what Archie was expecting it to do. So they tried to lay the blame at his door. Yeah. Although he wasn't charged with anything... And he was, by the you know standards of the tribunal, acquitted of all blame. It was a massive blow to his reputation. Yeah, well, it would be. Although, 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 it's never um, career-ending. Like, Brunel had bridges and that that failed, and mm. um, other massive engineer projects have collapsed and stuff before, and then people have sort well, of picked to, up their career. Because this is this is his club. You know, this is this was his big chance to contribute something to the club, and all he contributed mm. was the Death. world's, you know, the world's first major stadium disaster. Mm. That's quite and unfortunately, a it won't be the last. There was a lot. Wasn't no, there? well, there was another one in Ibrox in the seventies, yeah. I believe. Was there? Yeah, there was. I don't know what stadium it was, but um, I remember every time we used to do like fire safety training, Bradford. Yeah, that's it. They used to show us the video, and it used to traumatise me. I hated it. Mm. They were like, you need to watch it, because you need to know what fire does. I was like, I'm aware what fire does. Fire kills people. Yeah. Um, So, But what I'm saying is, with that kind of of thing happening, you could have been forgiven for, you know, thinking Archie, he'd give up on the idea of designing stadiums. That's not his thing. He'd go back to doing his factories and supporting Rangers just by being on the terraces. rather than constructing the terraces. Luckily, though, Archie had an obsessive personality, and he was determined that he would figure out how future large stands could be built safely. So he's like, I can see that more people want to go and watch football, and yes, I messed up, but there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way that I can get over 36,000 people onto a stand, and that stand will be safe. So he wanted to right his wrong, basically. Yeah, he wanted to atone for what had gone wrong. Yeah. 
As he pondered the problem, he continued to build factories and warehouses to make ends meet, and it was while designing the Sentinel Works in 1903 that he experienced a eureka moment. Despite now being a shell, the Sentinel Works building is now Grade 1 listed, and this is because Archibald had experimented with the idea of reinforced concrete, trying to discern the most cost-effective and functional means of constructing new industrial buildings. The Sentinel Works itself, um, it's a shell because he used um, iron rather than steel in the um, reinforcing rods. Got, yeah. And they started to, uh, you know... Disintegrate. Yeah, pretty much. So the, the building cannot actually be used, but okay. it also can't be knocked down. So it where just, is this building? Uh, it's in Glasgow. What's it called? The Sentinel Works. As in C-E... N-T-I-N-E-L. I'm going to look that up. Thank you. I would. But yes, he's come up with this idea for reinforced concrete. There were a couple of other reinforced concrete buildings ahead of the Sentinel Works. I think it was the third in Britain at the time, but it was definitely sort of cutting-edge technology. Yeah. And Archibald realised that he'd been blinded by a desire to give his club what they had asked for, despite his own misgivings. If he could view stadiums as just another type of industrial building that had a function to perform, he could approach the problem in a more detached and clinical manner. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He got his chance to test some of his new theories, as he'd already been asked to help design another new stadium in Glasgow called Hampden Park. Archibald Mm. built the terraces on banks of earth and replaced the wooden boards with concrete reinforced with steel. And the uh, frame, rather than being iron, was steel as well. Archibald also designed the terraces to have specific staircases, allowing the large structures to be split up into more manageable chunks to improve crowd control. And he topped this off by replacing the wooden railings traditionally used with new shiny tubular steel ones that he had patented. These okay. could be screwed directly into the steel used to reinforce the concrete and allowed for easy installation and removal as required. So he's, he's upgraded the spec of absolutely every element of a traditional stand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, OK. So he's done his homework. Yeah. And he's 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 upgraded absolutely everything, and a few patents were thrown out there because he's like I can see, I'm onto something here. Yeah, I'm getting there. He looked at the new stands he created, and he realised he'd stumbled upon a gold mine. Yes. Football attendances both north and south of the border were increasing year on year, and clubs were struggling to expand in line with the demand. Rather than design factories from scratch, engineers like Archibald would work from a small amount of basic designs and adapt these as needed. And Archie decided that he could do the same thing for football stadiums. Oh, so almost like on plan. Yeah. Prefabricating the... Yeah. Well, you you have your basic plan and you go, right, Mm. this is how it's going to work. How many people do you need? Right, we can prefab everything and then we can just look at any tweaks that you want to make. So they do that with houses, don't they? So Mm. you go into one part of the country and you can see exactly the same house as mm. somewhere completely different because they've literally just got one design and just maybe tweaked the frontage slightly or the stone that it's built in. Mm. The rendering on the front to sort of yeah. meet the, the local the local demand. Mm. Now, he'd had an idea that worked for him, but the great thing about it was it was also appealing to the football clubs for two very important reasons. Firstly, it meant that the new stands, as they were mainly prefab, could be installed quickly over the off-season so that they'd be ready when the football matches started. Yeah. And secondly, it meant they'd be cheap. Mm-hmm. We love cheap. We do. And, you know, football stadiums have always been, well, we want it to look impressive, but we also don't want to spend too much. Yeah. As with the factories he designed, Archie would then be able to add aftermarket architectural flourishes, such as gables and brick facades, mm-hmm. to the club specifications in order to give each design a bit of a club-specific feel. Yeah. And when I say brick facades, we're talking red brick. Uh, Proper brick. Classic. Classic brick, brick, yes. Which is um, unusual in Scotland. Um, having... Is red brick unusual in Scotland? Yeah. Yeah, you don't really get it. Um, you get a lot of stone buildings or granite, and oh, yeah. you get the um, you get the red sandstone, and you get the sort of blonde sandstone, and yeah, red brick buildings are quite rare. Wow, I did not know that. Mm. Okay, so he he was adding a bit of 
you know, English flair to it all. Yeah. Full of energy and ready to atone for his mistake at Ibrox, Archibald Leach headed south to England to try and sell his concept to some of the northern clubs. Mm-hmm. His first commission came through later in 1902, so the same year as the disaster. This is how quick he turned it around. I was going to say, that's really bloody quick, isn't it? That had happened in April. This this revelation was towards the tail end of 1902. Oh, really? So it had taken him about six months to go from absolute despair to designing some things and trialling them at Hamden to, Mm -hmm. I have a brand new business model and I'm going to go on Dragon's Den and I'm going to go and sell it to the Dragons. I always think the the pronunciation of Hamden, because everyone says Hamden, but it's Mm. got a P in it. It's Hampton, isn't it? No, it's Hamden. Yeah, but it's got a P in it. I know, but it's Hamden. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. But it's just, that's how everyone says it, how you've said it. Mm. But it should technically be said Hampton. I'll tell you what, you go up to you go up to Hampton and call it Hampton. See no, I know. Do. I used to live. I used to live <laughs> right near it. I'm, 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 I'm aware. Oh, look, it's Hampton Park. Like, well, I call it Glasgow, and they're like, it's Glasgow. Yeah, it is Glasgow. It's Glasgow. The people who who've lived there for generations get to name it. That's that's my rule. I don't. I don't sort of. Uh, no. Okay. Fine. Yeah. But I just can't say it. It just doesn't naturally oh. roll off my tongue. No, I get that. I mean, I'd feel a bit like an imposter if I went up there and actually went, it's Glasgow. Glasgow. I appreciate that's what it's called, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I'd have to go, yes, mm. I'm here in Glasgow. Yeah, or Glas- yeah, Glasgow. 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 I'm it's here in cause... Glasgow. <laughs> Which means dear green place in Celtic. There you go. Were they taking the piss? <laughs> I, I, it used to be very green I back in the day. probably did. Yeah. Not for a couple of hundred years now, though. No. Yeah, so his first commission came in 1902, and it was quite a get, uh, because he was asked to build a new main stand for Bramall Lane. Okay. Where's Bramall Lane? It's in Sheffield. Okay. And it was arguably the most famous stadium in England at the time, as it already even though it was 1902, been hosting football matches for 40 years. That was early. I mean, that could have just been like a pitch and a few sort of barriers, surely. It had been the home of the very first football club, Sheffield Football Club. Not to be Mm -hmm. confused with Sheffield United or Sheffield um, Wednesday. Wednesday. Sheffield United now have the ground, um, but they were formed a little bit later than Sheffield. Who has... Where was that disaster? Hillborough. Hillborough, that's Sheffield Wednesday. Right. Yeah. So Bramall Lane was the oldest one. It was the first football stadium that had floodlights and tried a flood a floodlit match, and nice. it was the uh, venue for the very first local derby, which was between Sheffield FC and Hallam FC. Yeah. I used to work for Hallam FM. Well, there you go. Hmm. You're part of this story now. I'm part of the story. The stand went up without a hitch, and under budget, which is very key for Northern football clubs. Because word quickly spread that there was this Scottish guy coming down doing you a brand new shiny stand on the cheap. Hmm. So there's this guy who's selling cheap stands and other clubs started to take note. You would have thought they'd be quite wary considering he's selling them on the cheap and he's just had a stand collapse. Yeah, but he was evangelical about this. He was hmm. He was convinced that he had come up with the perfect design ethos and he was a great salesman. Mm. So he would go and speak to the clubs and he would explain it all and how safe it was and how great it was and how long-lasting it was. And he was really, apparently, quite charismatic mm. with all of this. So Sheffield, you know, at Bramall Lane, they'd gone, yep, we're all in on Archie. We'll have this massive whacking stand. And it didn't take long for Middlesbrough Football Club to order a new north stand for their ground at Ayrson Park. Mm-hmm. This stand would last long enough to host spectators in the 1966 World Cup. No way. Even better, during the 1966 World Cup, it acted as the home ground for North Korea. Did it really? No way. And amazingly, on Tuesday, July 19th, 1966, Mm. the North Koreans managed to beat Italy (laughs) 1-0. What year was this, sorry? 1966. Oh, okay. So this is this is under the the um, dictatorship. I think it's just pre-Vietnam War, but the fact that they beat Italy 
five I times mean, World yeah. Cup winners Italy Good on them. were beaten in Sheffield by North Korea. I like an underdog. Uh, no, sorry, even worse, they were beaten in Middlesbrough by North Korea. What an odd yeah. combination of places yeah. in one place. And it's the reason that Italians hate Middlesbrough to this day. Uh, okay. You'll never find an Italian who'll say a nice word about Middlesbrough. If anyone's out there that's listening who's Italian and loves Middlesbrough, please get in touch. Yeah, I think in total we've had maybe five listeners from Italy over the last year, so the chances of those Venn diagrams meeting is <laughs> just not going to happen. Well, you never know. You didn't never know unless you <coughs> asked the questions. That's true. We can ask. I've never had a reply to any of the questions I've asked on here, to be fair. Hmm. 1904 saw two new stands ordered for two more northern clubs. Firstly, a prototype Man City hired Archibald to build a stand at Hyde Road, mm-hmm. which is not where they play anymore. No, they play at, yeah, what is it called? The Etihad. How do you say that? But the, how do you spell it? I don't know how you spell it, it's pronounced the Etihad. Is it like with a Y? Is no, like no, yes? no, it definitely doesn't have a Y, it has an I. Etihad. But everyone Ayeti. just says Etihad. This is such a strange name, isn't it? A Yeti had. Because for ages I thought it was a Yeti. (laughs) The Yeti had. I was like, what what has a Yeti got to do with football? Mm. Nothing. That would be confusing. Mm. But put the Yetis out of your mind because that doesn't matter at all. What really matters is that in 1904, after they built this piddling little stand for, for some Manchester club, the mighty Blackburn Rovers requested that Leach design their new Nuttall Street stand. That's your team, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. The mm. Nuttall Street stand doesn't exist anymore. Oh. But both were clad outside in red brick, which quickly became a signature of his designs. Cool. Everyone, everyone went mad for it. Everyone wanted it. Yeah. And it also allowed him a chance to show off his artistic side because he would put on sort of arches and he put on little flourishes on the facade mm. uh, because, you know, the inside was... It was pretty much like a factory just mm. to store people. Yeah, very Edwardian. It was very functional. It was very sort of bland and bare. But on Mm. the outside, he went nuts. Good for him. He enjoyed himself on the outside. A flourish. And this was, I mean, Empire was still doing pretty well. There was still money flying around. Oh, there was a bit of cash. Yeah. With four stands up now, and no further disasters reported, Archibald's reputation recovered. And in 1905, two clubs in London decided to go all in and ask him to design not just one stand, but their entire stadium from scratch. <sighs> Amazing. These teams were Chelsea of Stamford Bridge yeah. and Fulham of Craven Cottage. Yeah. Isn't, ironically, Chelsea's grand ground in Fulham now? Yes, Chelsea's ground is in Fulham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so these were both very close. I know more than I think I know about you this do. stuff. I know. You should be pleased with that. I am. I I was looking because I was looking at um, that, and I was like, "Oh, they're both in Fulham." And then I was like, "Well, you know, the two Liverpool clubs are across the road from each other, uh, across Stanley Park, so they're mm. really close." But there are two clubs. Is it Aberdeen? I think it's Aberdeen. Hello, there, listeners. As we are a fact-based show, I need to point out that the previous fact was wrong. It is actually Dundee Football Club and Dundee United, which are only 0.2 miles apart. And now back to the show. They are literally on the same road. Oh, really? (laughs) It is the closest rivalry. Where I I went on Google Maps and I dropped my little guy down and you could see the floodlights from both stadia. That's just asking for trouble, isn't it? It's like when you build like two schools next to each other. You're just asking for rivalry. Well, I mean, you get local rivalry anyway. They're like, well, why why bother to spread this out to the rest of the city? We'll just pop them both on this residential street. And it's the people we'll who draw, live on we'll that draw road a line, deal with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, we'll draw a line here. We can just circle the violence in a three-block radius rather than have it spread out. Mm, I, see, I see their logic there. We'll just keep it here, contain it. Aye. But yeah, so he built Chelsea's ground. He built Fulham's ground. It's going well. And in 1906, he built the main stand at Anfield for Liverpool Football Club. Mm-hmm. Archibald was further developing and refining his designs all the time. And when presented with the challenge of designing a stadium with two pitches next to each other, 
a cricket pitch on one side and a football pitch on the other in Bradford, he created a double-sided grandstand in 1907. He's just showing off now. Oh, isn't he just? He also began to notice that uh, many of the stadiums had been built in residential areas. And as a result, it wasn't possible to expand much from the original footprint when trying to increase capacity. So normally with a stand, you have to go further back every time you add a tier because it's a single sort of continual... Even if you have sort of like steps, you've got two tiers. Yeah, so it's like a... uh, um, What do they call them? Jetties, where they like... Well, yeah, it's constantly expanding outwards as you increase capacity. Mm. To combat this, though, he came up with the idea of a double-decker design where the terraces were stacked on top of each other rather than continuing backwards. Mm. He debuted this design in Bradford at Valley Parade with the aptly named Bradford End Stand. Okay. Also in 1907. So these double-deckers became another one uh, of his designs. And if you want to see a double-decker just before it gets knocked down, Everton have a great example of the double-decker. So are a lot of them gone now? Well, we'll get into why, but Okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, they all would have lasted. There's certain things that happened, unfortunately. But after his death, so who cares? (laughs) (laughs) The following year, Archibald received his largest commission yet, he was asked to design the new White Hart Lane for Tottenham Hotspurs. The design, when complete, became the largest British football stadium in Britain. The largest British football stadium in Britain? I must have been high when I wrote this. <laughs> I didn't even clock it. I was like, mm-hmm, yeah. Yep, yep. This cool. design became the largest football stadium in Britain at the time it was completed. He also did a bit of work for Everton, designing the Goodison Road stand on his way back home from London, because it's kind of on the way. If you're heading back up the west coast of Glasgow, you know, you'll you'll go past Liverpool and you may as well stop yeah. off for a little little commission. Just just your standard prefab stand, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was on his way back to Glasgow for a very important reason. Because he had received a call from his beloved Rangers. <sighs> they were wondering if he'd like to bury the hatchet and redesign their ground using his innovative new designs. No way. Of course, he jumped at the chance and was yeah. probably shocked that the club actually planned to pay him money this time. Well, they were like, right, we're paying you. Get it right. Well, yeah, Get we, th- it we think right. the problem last time was we asked you to do it for free. And maybe some of those deaths are on us. Yeah. So this time we're going to pay you what you're worth and we'll see if that improves things. Yeah. Maybe it will. Maybe there'll be no death and we won't traumatise people. Mm. Uh- you know, our footballers. That would be a useful thing. Yeah. We don't want all of our players to have PTSD next season. We're hoping the to win is, some things. Yeah, PD, PTSD before, like, bloody World War One. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If, they've, if they go into they it They invented like that, it, mate. Yeah. The expansion he designed took the total capacity to 63,000, which is smaller than the last time he tried to expand it, but it still eclipsed the capacity at Tottenham, making Ibrox the highest capacity stadium at the time. Yes, only the, only the best for his team. Yeah. His status as the best stadium designer in the UK was confirmed. And throughout the 1910s and 1920s, Archibald was in high demand, having a hand in designing the stadiums of... Portsmouth, Sheffield Wednesday, Sunderland, Air, Aberdeen, Manchester United, Leicester City, Southampton, Preston, Dundee, Arsenal, Huddersfield, Wraith Rovers, Hearts, and the impressive Villa Park for Aston Villa which took two years to complete, but was definitely one of the most beautiful stadiums he ever designed. What was this one? This is Villa Park, the original. There's one end which was done up. It had two staircases, um, and it was all in red brick, and it was achingly beautiful. It was so kind of atmospheric, but he he helped to design Villa Park. It's, It's been replaced since, even though it was listed, I believe. Yeah. They had to get special permission. But to get it gone. Yeah, to, to, to do anything with it. But yeah, you know, when I when I read out that list, there were others. I mean, that's that's bloody impressive, isn't it? Oh, it's nice. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's very nice. Isn't it? Yeah, You just take a minute it? to bask in the glory of that. I will. Look at them glorious steps that lead up. That was the thing. You imagine if you were a young kid... And you're being taken to your first football match by your dad. Mm. And you were presented with that. And he, he was helping drag you up those steps to get with in. A- 
Aston on one pillar and Villa on the other. Mm. Um, it's no wonder Aston Villa fans are pretty, you know, they're pretty hardcore, do or die. You know, once you've been to one Villa match, if it's your first football match, I, I can understand why you'd be hooked by the drama and the atmosphere of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that that stadium is not there. Mm. Anymore. Oh, it's gorgeous. Mm. Oh, look at the lamps. I mean, I know, sorry, I know this is a podcast and no one can actually look at the lamps, but the lamps are very nice. However, possibly the most productive year for Archie was 1928. He started by designing a second stand for Everton, nearly 20 years after the first one. So they were, they were getting their stadium in instalments, basically. Yeah. Uh, he then took on a job to build West Ham Stadium, which was the home of... West Ham? Nope. Greyhounds. Okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, because West Ham United were playing at the bowling ground at the time. Mm-hmm. What he built was a 120,000-seater Greyhound track. It was the biggest stadium in terms of capacity that Archie was solely responsible for designing in his career. And the track itself was so big that a standard race didn't quite complete the oval. <laughs> so unlike you know traditional Greyhound tracks where you had to run a lap, yeah. they ran maybe three-fifths of a lap. Okay, fine. And that was the standard distance. It was just it was so big. Though it wasn't designed for football, the West Ham ground, a team did take up residence there in 1930. Hmm. Thames Association Football Club. Okay. Who to this day hold the record for the lowest recorded attendance for a football league game, with 469 people rattling around in a stadium designed to hold over 119,500 more than that. And there was only 600, no, 400 there were There were just under 500 people. I mean, yeah, at least you had, like, leg room, I guess. Unsurprisingly, Thames Association Football Club don't exist anymore. No. Just out of sheer embarrassment. No. It's a weird name, isn't it? Mm. Well, I think part of the problem was, in that area, you had, like, West Ham, you had Millwall. It was really... Charlton were in there. So you had so many already established clubs, and they were like, oh, we'll start a new club. I'm sure we can get people to come. And everyone had already chose their affiliation by this stage they were just too late to the party in 1930 oh yeah totally his beloved rangers had just won the scottish league and cup double in 1928 and decided to celebrate by having a new main stand built okay naturally they called archie who saw this as a chance to perfect his design ethos the stand with original red brick facade still exists to this day and is now a Grade 2 listed building in its own right. So I've always admired that stand when I drove past it, um, and that's one of his. That's one of his. It's been extended, so it's longer than it was, but they decided to match the red brick and keep it looking the way it does. But Mm. yes, that is one of only two, really, uh, stands that are still pretty much the original Archibald Leach design. I think, like uh, I mentioned before, obviously red brick in Scotland is not a big thing, so it just it just does stand out in its surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the buildings that were around it have gone anyway. Like a lot of the tenement buildings and that have been pulled down. So um, you've got some of the nineteen sixties high rise and that like near it, um, but there's also a lot of wasteland, so it does just stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's quite something to behold, even for me, someone who is not a football connoisseur. But you are a fan of architecture I and am of red a f- brick. So I am, yeah. Maybe Rangers are your club based on those things. Oh, maybe. I'd be in the minority, though, I think. I think Celtic are the, are the team to support. Only if you're Catholic. <laughs> Rangers always had an affiliation with... Uh, Protestantism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know how it was decided, like whether they flipped a coin and went, right, you're the Catholic team, you're the Protestant team. But... I, I guess it's where, like, areas that people were living in, mm. isn't it? Um... Yeah, there is a bit of a distance between Celtic Park, also known as Paradise, which I like. Hmm. The it... ground is literally referred to as Paradise. Okay, fine. The they last... always win, always. Apart from this Sunday when they drew, I know that. Actually, someone told me today. What you'll find is that Rangers have won the league uh, damn sight more than Celtic have. Ah, interesting. Mm. 
They've won it 55 times, I believe, to this point. Hmm. Are they around the same age? You did tell me that uh, earlier. Um, Celtic was later. Celtic was about a decade later than Rangers. Okay. But basically, as soon as Celtic turned up, Glasgow Rangers were like, finally, someone we can hate. Here we go. Here we go, lads. Yeah. This is the rivalry. Let's do this. Queen's Park. Sorry, guys. I know you're from Glasgow as well, but you can... You can just take a walk. I know the other teams kind of just don't get a don't get a look in like Partick Thistle and stuff. Who who cares? It's Ranger Celtic in it. It's the old firm. Yeah. The last stand that Archibald Leach designed was the Gladys Street end for Everton, a classic double decker stand that was completed nearly thirty years after the first stand he had built for the club. So Everton really were they were Late buying to the it. Game. Yeah. No, well they they just you know it was like we'll get one stand done every decade yeah. and then every 40 years we'll have a brand new stadium it's a great business model we've got 10 mm. years to pay off the last one yeah. before we commit to the next one because yeah, to, to obviously I know like stands are like separate sort of constructions yep. but now they build they tend to build it all in one don't they well the reason I mean Archibald he is the reason that British stands and stadia are done in the way they are Okay. Traditionally, in pretty much everywhere else in the world, they follow the Colosseum model and they build just a large bowl. Yeah. You yeah. know, you look at um, American football stadiums, you look at Southern American uh, football stadiums, you look at most European football stadiums. The idea of four separate, separate stands came from the fact that he came up with this modular design and said, well, if you want to increase your capacity, you can do it one stand at a time. Ah, uh, yeah. So that characteristic sort of British football stadium... Yeah. is based almost entirely on this guy because a lot of, originally they were all playing at cricket ovals which was that yeah, sort of bowl that idea. round yeah so he he created it's very the idea. squared isn't it like mm. well rectangle and he will park to this day has four separate stands a lot of lower league clubs still have that mm. boom 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 yeah and if they do do a stadium you know sort of expansion they'll just increase do one, one of, the of them yeah so yeah, he would not get a chance to complete the set for Everton, as in 1939, only a few months after attending Ibrox to witness an old firm game as one of 118,567 spectators, which remains the largest attendance at any British league match in history. Which That's m- impressive. Considering he helped design most of that stadium, must have been a proud moment. Yeah. When he realised that his his designs had managed to withstand... You know that amount of people. Yeah, we're talking what forty, nearly fifty thousand more than attended the one where his stadium failed. Yeah. You know, so more than fifty percent again. His stands are rock. They're not swaying <laughs> in no breeze. Nah, I've mastered it, mate. Completed it. They're Damn. not creating random human meat pillows <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> they're, they're fine. These stands. Yes, but shortly after, only a few short months after this crowning achievement, Archibald Leach died on April 25th two days before his 74th birthday. Oh, I didn't make it. Amazingly despite his impact on the cultural identity of British football clubs, he didn't get an obituary at all. I really? (laughs) Yeah, and even though his death was mentioned in one or two sort of niche architectural and engineering magazines, they referred to him only as a designer of factories. They didn't mention the football stadiums at all because that was considered a bit of rough. Mm. It was kind of beneath yeah, the, the low, lofty low ideals grade. of architecture. Low grade. Mm. And to put into perspective how much of an oversight this was, at the time of his death, anyone attending a league game, north or south of the border, had approximately a one in three chance of being in a stand designed by Archibald Leach. That is pretty impressive. Like one guy from the Gorbals, which is like the roughest, or was the roughest area of Glasgow. Mm. At one point, 16 of the 22 top flight um, British uh, English clubs had a Leach design stadium. It was just it, how ubiquitous he was, was just ridiculous. Yeah. It was a monopoly, essentially. It's a shame that so, like most of them have gone. Mm. Well, many of his designs did last into the late 
you know, the latter part of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, until the Hillsborough disaster. Oh, and although, was that one of his? Yeah, although he'd helped design it, I need to be very clear. Okay. The reason for the Hillsborough disaster was due to later additions uh, okay. of a crush back. Well, basically, they built a fence to stop people spilling out onto the pitch. Okay. So he hadn't designed massive fencing to keep people in. No. And the issue was that a load of people turned up without tickets, and rather than the um, police turning them away, they just kept waving people in. And that there's was a lot, the big crush. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who go, oh, well, the, the fans shouldn't have done that. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, fans want to go and see their club. Mm. You shouldn't design a stadium or you shouldn't modify a stadium so that it's going to become dangerous. And if you're charged with policing it, that's what mm-hmm. you need to do. Yeah, your prime responsibility is to keep people safe. The fault lies with the authorities because not mm. one of those individual fans thought that they were going to be um, contributing to the deaths of 97 other people. Well, why would they? They wouldn't go, would they, if they... They assumed that that was the case. Yeah, if you're being waved in, you assume that you're fine, that that's safe. Yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. It's like if I went into a concert today, I would assume that I was safe, or as safe as can be. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah. But as a result of the Hillsborough disaster, there was a move towards all-seated stadiums, and that led to many of the older stands being torn down and completely replaced. Yeah. Because it was cheaper to rebuild rather than to retrofit a lot of these iconic designs. However, if you do want to see a classic Archibald Leach design, your best bet is to either go to Ibrox and look at his magnum opus, or you can head to the River Thames and Craven Cottage, where the original 1906, now known as the Johnny Haynes stand, complete with the iconic gable and red brick outer facade, still stands. See, that's an old one, Mm. 1906. Ibrox is a lot later, isn't it? But much like Hybrox, it is now a listed building, and Fulham committed to keeping it in situ during the recent stadium upgrades. So oh, fair amazing. play to Fulham. And of yeah, course, yeah, the yeah. cottage still exists, because Craven Cottage originally was a hunting lodge. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah. Why would it not be? And they love their history. Also, um, Plymouth Argyle's main stand is a beautiful stand to go and look at that was yeah. designed by Archibald Leach. Um, Bradford City still have the double-decker that's there. And like I said, Everton's Gladys Street is, until they relocate by the river, yeah, uh, still there for a little bit longer if you want to go and see it. The main stand at Liverpool, amazingly, because what Liverpool did was expand on it, it's now kind of been um, consumed. <laughs> it's been consumed by the newer construction, so it still exists in there somewhere. They've just oh, built right. around just, it. Oh, okay, fine. So it's, okay. It, yeah, it's, it's just like they've, they've built on the outer shell so much that somewhere in the bowels of that main stand at Anfield... It's there. And that, it's, an, it's an impressive main stand at Anfield. But, yeah, Archibald Leach is somewhere deep in the core of that. The thing is, I like... I think, like, a lot of things now, um, a lot of stadiums, although they are impressive and they, they do what they're meant to do, like in size and capacity and stuff, that they they've kind of lost their individuality a little bit. I feel as an outsider, you look at a stadium, you're like, that's built now, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, fine. But like with these red brick ones that have got all these flourishes and and steps and lamps and like it, to me, it gives it character. Hmm. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I didn't mention as well um, some of the other things that he had um, uh, a hand in. So Twickenham, okay, yeah. he, he helped with that. You know... Um, oh, you, can t- you could tell. Windsor Park in Ireland, Northern Ireland, he, he helped to design that. Uh, there's there's loads of things that, that he helped to design. He's He was just <laughs> the guy to go to if you needed to seat or stand a lot of people. I wonder why he's not more well-known. I sw- well, I guess... Because it wasn't it wasn't considered sort of high end architecture. It was, you know, football, especially the at masses. the time he was doing it. It was for the common folk. It was what the working class went to do on a weekend. Mm. So being the the guy who designed that was considered to be oh well you're slumming it. The thing is, it's quite interesting though because the factories and stuff that he was building, mm. like a lot of the people in those factories, I guess, were the in brackets the common people oh definitely they'd be the people that were going to this 
these stands as well. So actually, like, he had a hand in so many people's lives, like, recreationally. And Yeah, the only thing he didn't design were their houses. Yeah. Yeah. Normally, what I'd do at this point is I would tell you the book that I read for this. But the main source this time was a YouTube interview with author Simon Inglis, who wrote a biography of Archibald Leach and was talking about a lot of the things that, you know, were in the book. And the reason I didn't use the book itself was because Engineering Archie, which was published by, I think it was British Heritage, uh, is currently out of print, and I was not able to find a copy for less than £100. No way! And I was like, I I like this guy, I like his story, I love um, Simon Inglis, he is a football historian, which is a great thing. He's a massive Aston Villa fan, uh, so he was the one who was really waxing lyrical about the first time he went to go to, to that park. stadium that I'm in love with. Yeah, and it it just took him, and I understand why. But he mm. he described, and I can understand why you'd suddenly be interested in the architecture if you saw that. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, but yeah, I as much as I would like to buy that book, I can't justify spending a hundred pounds. No. No, and uh, do you know what? I also like that you've used a different type of medium to... I'm using YouTube a lot more, actually, and there were a few really good um, little sort of uh, things about Archie Hmm. and what he did, because there's a lot of people who like to um, do blogs and vlogs about about football. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.